Section 5 of 14 Months in American Bastilles by Francis Key Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Steamboat, State of Maine. On the afternoon of the 28th of October, we were notified to prepare to leave Fort Lafayette on the following morning. We were then locked up in the various casements and batteries for the rest of that day. The next morning our baggage was sent out to the wharf, we being still kept in close confinement, and a little after midday our baggage was brought back, and we were informed that the boat would not be ready that day. We were kept under lock and key all that day, and only permitted to go out to dinner. There was no conceivable reason for this last act of insolent harshness. On the morning of the 30th, we left the fort on a small steamer, with a file of soldiers, and were carried up to Fort Columbus on Governor's Island, and alongside of the steamer, State of Maine, which was lying at the wharf. She was a very ordinary-looking river steamer, very low in the water, and very dirty. Her upper forward deck was covered with soldiers. She had been engaged in transporting soldiers and horses, and an experienced sea captain of our party, who managed to evade the sentinels and go over the vessel, informed me that between decks forward of the shaft she was perfectly filthy. There were about one hundred and ten of us, and we were sent on board of the State of Maine, and directed to pass into the upper after-cabin. This cabin was long and dark, and in it were about twenty-two or three small staterooms, each containing two berths. It opened aft upon a covered deck, which was so small that, when our party collected there, it was considerably overcrowded. Just beneath the deck on which we were was the dining saloon, along the sides of which ran a double tier of berths. There may have been about twenty or twenty-five of these altogether. The whole after part of the vessel could not decently accommodate the one hundred and ten prisoners then on board. To our astonishment we learned that not only were we to take on board some seventeen political prisoners from Fort Columbus, but that the officers and soldiers who had been taken prisoners at Fort Hatteras were to join us also. These numbered six hundred and forty-five. Remonstrance or complaint was useless. These additional prisoners were marched on board, the officers and political prisoners being sent to the after part of the boat with us, and the privates being packed in forward of the cabin, wherever it was possible for them to find standing room. We did not get away from Fort Columbus until about four and a half p.m. While we were still lying at the wharf, it seems to have occurred to some of those in charge of us that it was part of their duty to offer us something to eat. A large wicker basket lined with tin was then brought up full of water. It had been made to hold dirty plates and dishes, and had been used for that purpose, apparently time out of mind, on the steamer. A soldier then brought up a box of crackers, and another appeared with a tin plate, which was several times replenished, containing large square pieces of boiled pork. Nine out of ten of these pieces were solid lumps of pure fat. A couple of old dirty-looking horse-buckets of coffee were also provided. Such was the dinner furnished. After this I saw no more of the pork, nor do I think there was any more on board, at least for the prisoners. Hunger compelled some of the prisoners to try and swallow the masses of blubber which were offered them, 
but many were unequal to the effort. A large proportion of the party dined, therefore, on crackers and water. When we started, we had on board 127 political prisoners, 645 prisoners of war, and 100 federal soldiers, besides the officers and crew of the steamer. I subsequently learned that the only stores put on board for our subsistence consisted of 1,006 pounds of hard bread, 128 pounds of coffee, and 258 pounds of sugar. Thus loaded down almost to the water's edge, we headed for Long Island Sound. The discomfort of our situation cannot be described. Moreover, we all knew, for the naval officers among us had so said, and the officers of the boat admitted, that the vessel was, in her then condition, utterly unseaworthy, and that, if a moderate gale should catch us at the sea, the chances were largely in favor of our going to the bottom. About dusk I heard that supper had been prepared in the dining saloon, for the officers who had us in charge, and that, as far as it would go, those of us who chose to pay for it could partake of it. It was at the same time stated that the officers of the boat had received no notice of the number of the prisoners she was to carry, and had not made the slightest provision for them. Under such circumstances, but very few of us could get a single meal in the dining saloon. By dint of great patience and perseverance, I succeeded in getting some supper about nine o'clock at night. The next day, after many ineffectual efforts, I managed to get a very late breakfast, and that was the last meal I got from the officers of the boat or government. I was far better off, however, than the mass of my companions, for Mrs. Jelston again stood our friend. She had heard we were to leave Fort Lafayette, and had thoughtfully sent to those occupying the casemate, in which I was, a huge basket of provisions for our journey. It contained pheasants, chickens, tongues, pies, and other delicacies, and one of my roommates, Mr. Warfield, and myself, consented, or perhaps volunteered, to take it under our special charge during the journey. On these stores I and my former roommates lived for the ensuing two days, sharing them, however, as far as we could, with other friends. But our supplies were wholly insufficient to meet any but the most limited demand, and we could extend our invitations to but few. Most of the prisoners had to put up with the hard bread and coffee during the two days and nights we remained on board. Just before dark, the clerk of the boat came on the after-deck to distribute the keys of the few staterooms assigned to us, which until then had been kept locked. The North Carolina officers had the berths in the dining saloon. There were, as already mentioned, about twenty-two staterooms altogether, in the upper after-cabin, and one or two of these were used for different purposes by the officers of the boat, and one or two others could accommodate but one person each. It was obvious that not more than one-third of us would get any beds. Here again I was very fortunate, for I happened to be standing by Governor Moorhead, to whom the clerk gave the first key, and I was able to secure one. Those who failed to obtain berths, either in the dining saloon or staterooms, and they constituted a very large majority of the party, had no alternative but to drop down wherever they could and try to sleep. After those who had beds had retired, 
the cabin presented a scene that no man who was present will be likely to forget. It was densely packed with men, in every possible position. Upon each of the hard wooden settees, two or three persons had contrived to stow themselves in half-recumbent positions, that were little likely to afford them the desired rest. Those who had chairs were sleeping on them, some sitting bolt upright, and some leaning back against the sides of the cabin. But many could get neither chairs nor places on the settees, and these were lying or sitting upon the floor. Over the latter had been strewn bread and pieces of fat pork, all of which, being saturated with the expectorations of numberless tobacco chewers, had been trampled into a consistent mass of filth by the feet of one hundred and fifty men. Some of the unfortunates, whom absolute weariness had compelled to lie down on the floor, were lucky enough, as they esteemed themselves, to obtain some newspapers, which they spread between the dirt and their persons. Others had to take the floor as they found it, and the vacant spaces were so limited that many were not even allowed a choice of places. As for the prisoners of war, the privates, they seemed to have slept, if they slept at all, wherever they could manage to stretch themselves. We were not suffered to go among them, but I could see from the door of the dining saloon, the morning after we started, that they were lying about between decks, on piles of coal, coils of rope, or the bare floor. We reached Fort Warren about dusk on the evening of the 31st, and Colonel Justin Dimmick, who commanded the post, came on board. He said that he had only expected 110 prisoners, that not the slightest notice of the coming of the prisoners of war had been given, and that he was wholly unprepared to receive us. He, however, ordered some 300 of the North Carolina soldiers ashore, and said the rest of us must remain that night on board. Thus we had another cheerless and wretched night to look forward to. It passed like the previous one, and we were only too glad when day dawned, well knowing that whatever might happen, our situation could not be made worse. That morning, before we left the boat, I vainly endeavored to procure a glass of drinkable water. There was none to be had on board. The only supply of water left was stale and foul, and was used for washing, though not fit for that purpose. I was too thirsty to be particular, and having disguised the color and flavor of a glassful by pouring into it a teaspoonful of essence of ginger, I made shift to swallow it. I then breakfasted on the scraps which remained in our basket, and prepared to go ashore. This account of the privations to which we were subjected on that occasion I have neither overstated nor overcollared. On a convict ship, our position could have been no worse, and even on such a vessel, more regard would be manifested for the safety of the prisoners than was shown for ours. All this was endured by numbers of gentlemen who would be disparaged by being compared, in point of character, intelligence, and position, with Mr. Lincoln, Mr. Stanton, or Mr. Seward. It was an extremely fortunate thing that the weather was fine and the sea calm after we passed out of the sound. Wretched as our situation was, it would have been aggravated tenfold had many of the prisoners suffered from seasickness. We were, however, spared such addition to our troubles. I need not therefore surmise how miserable in such a case our lot would have been 
nor what would have been the inevitable result of our being overtaken by such a gale as set in the very night after we reached Fort Warren. With a very little forethought and trouble, and a very slight expenditure of money on the part of the government, or of those of its officers who were charged with our transportation to Fort Warren, our journey might have been made in tolerable decency, if not comfort. As it was, we were treated with as little consideration as cattle. The brutality that characterized the higher officers of the government seemed, as far as we could then judge, to be equally conspicuous in most of their subordinates. End of section 5 Recording by Katie Riley September 2010